Welcome to How'd We Get Here, a podcast on education and design with wellness in mind. My name is Mark Anthony, and on today's episode, we'll speak to Nicola Hamilton, an independent art director and graphic designer, as we discuss managing professional personas as a designer. So hi, Nicola. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So last time we were on this podcast, we were speaking uh, to some recent grads about their journeys as students and moving into the role of designers themselves. And now I guess we're sort of discussing our own stories um, at a pretty crazy time. Wild times. <laughs> yeah, like a lot has happened since March or April since we started doing um, the podcast together. Yeah, it feels like the... Um weight of the global pandemic has died down a little bit from then like everyone was so their awareness was so intensely heightened yeah by COVID-19 when we talked to students and recorded this last yeah um and now it feels like that sort of universal pause is shining light on lots of other systems that don't work oh yeah yeah we're starting to see like the breakup of one system and then noticing the cracks in all the other ones right yeah it's uh it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. I think it's good in a way, though. I think it's one of those things that had to happen. Um, I, I don't so know. Too. I don't know if you believe in astrology at all, but um, yeah. it's there are a whole bunch of planets that aligned um, recently, and that is the end theory when planets come back into an alignment. It's the end of a cycle. So we're at the end of a five hundred year cycle. Yeah. So just like off, sort of the air, where I was telling you, my daughter Noelle got a new cat. And we named him Astro. And on that day is when the planets aligned. So that's why we named him Astro. Cute. Uh, and you got him during a full moon yep. also. That exact day, moon. July 4th. Yeah. A full moon with an eclipse. Yep. Wild. I don't know what that means. You'd have to ask somebody. <laughs> Neither do I, but we can Google it after the show. <laughs> I'm smarter <laughs> about these things. I'll put it in the show notes afterwards. <laughs> so anyways, before we get started to our convo, uh, do you want to just maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an independent art director and graphic designer, which is what you said already. Um, I'm based in Toronto. I've been working in the industry for almost 10 years. The bulk of my career has been focused on, on editorial design. So magazines, newspapers, books, that kind of thing. I've done stints at publications like The Grid, which is a now defunct City Weekly was here in Toronto. I helped redesign Chatelaine, stuck around there for a few years as deputy art director. Um, and most recently, before I went out on my own, I was the art director at Studio Wise, which is a narrative-driven design studio also based in Toronto. Um, I'm also the co-founder of a project called The Scaries on the side. It's an art project that explores creative self-doubt. So the fear we have, the terrible things we say to each other while we are making things. I am the current president of the RGD, so that's the Registered Graphic Designers. That's based in Toronto, but it has national reach. Um, and so I've worked with them for a number of years now as a board member and now president. And then I'm also a design educator at Humber, which is how we know each other, and then at George Brown as well. So you have like a long list of hats, I guess, that you wear and roles that you play. Yeah, and I think those are the ones that I'm comfortable attaching to myself today there are other <laughs> tiny things in the works all the time and, and i think that's what we wanted to talk about today is like how do you actually balance or manage those multiple roles and having to maybe switch between different personas throughout your day at any given point in time because i mean you are on one hand 
an educator, which a lot of students look to as the authority of design or maybe look up to in a sense. Um, and then you're also now, you say, currently the president of RGD, which comes along with its own, you know, roles of leadership. But then you're also been a designer within agencies and also freelancing too. So you're also a leader to your clients, but then at some point you also have to take leadership from others. Yeah. You sort of have to like move between modes of operating, if that makes sense. It's hard. I think that, you know, you and I have talked about a little uh, this a little bit offline as well, but it's super challenging. And I don't think I'm an expert in this by any means, I guess. Um, but it is some serious cognitive work and I think emotional work too. I remember the first time I started noticing how hard it was to shift modes was the transition from working on a print product to a digital product. So um, again, I've worked in magazines and, and newspapers primarily, and that's such print-based work. There are um, structures in place underneath of everything and the technology is old technology and it's not changing that quickly. Um, and then I started to dabble in, in digital design and front-end UI work and doing that kind of work requires a completely different part of my brain. And so I found myself when I was shifting from laying out a magazine feature to focusing on a website, I spent the first hour or two getting absolutely nothing done. I'd just be moving things around on the page. I couldn't focus. I didn't totally understand why. Um, and I started to acknowledge that that was, it's a different part of your brain that you need some time to decompress from one mode of operating to the other. Um, yeah. The way you move between one project to another, even right. Like balancing the values of one client as you're working on one project and then trying to focus on the values of another without letting them bleed together. And that's why I think I wanted to also speak about this topic with you, because even when I come at this through the lens of sort of like a student and educator, obviously, because that's mostly what I do now. Um, I mean, I still do freelance, but I sort of want to give the take of what the student's sort of going through and also the educator is yeah. I noticed that, you know, students have to shift between so many different modes of creativity with multiple projects throughout the week, um, within different subjects, different disciplines. And I sometimes wonder if that sort of like cognitive load that you're talking about, obviously it weighs on them. But how, how can they maybe manage switching between those roles of like, okay, I have this UX project, but now I have a branding project. And now I have a coding project. Now I have a front end web design project or an editorial project. Like those require different parts of the brain, like you say, and also different modes of creativity, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think there's also another layer in there. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this and it's something that Didi Katona, one of the founders of Concrete told me, we were talking about why design work can be so challenging. It's meant to be creative and fun. And sometimes getting started is such a weight. And her insight that I think is brilliant was that everything we do is custom. There's very little that we do that starts from any kind of framework that exists already. And so we're making tiny decisions from the very beginning. There's nothing that's in place already. And so I think there's that like shifting modes, ways of thinking. There's this idea that you have to start from nothing. And then I think for students on top of that, the other thing that's worth pointing out is that they're often switching between doing something themselves alone through their own lens to doing something 
for a group project that has to take into account all of the ideas and opinions and synthesize that information from multiple people. And then they're also trying to please multiple educators, right? There are multiple instructors who have different ways, um, different processes for students to work through those projects. So there's so much under there. Yeah, there's so many layers to unpack in this, right? There is so many, like you said, instructors design authorities that they're trying to please, right? Because everybody's trying to get get this right. And I think in the whole process of this, no one's really actually finding themselves or finding their unique um, sort of design aesthetic. They're all just trying to appease this person who is in control of, I guess, their grade at the end of the day or how well they do or level of success, I guess. It's so interesting. Process and in, in aesthetic, like you're like pleasing yourself doesn't yeah. become part of that equation when you're in school, or at least that wasn't my experience. That's not what I was focused on through the majority of my studies. And it's worth mentioning that I came up through the Humber design program. It looked a little different then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you aren't that focused on the influences that you find valuable, the values that you want to communicate in your work, the aesthetic that you're drawn to and the historic relevancy of that. Um, you're sort of not necessarily by, by nature of the bulk of work and everything else that's going on and everything you're balancing, you're not really um, thinking critically about all the information that's been presented to you and how you want to put that into your work. Um, again, I don't, I don't know that we have that um, level of emotional intelligence about the work until we've been in it for a couple of years, how it all sort of ties together. Process is one of those things and, and finding your own aesthetic is one of those things that I think we all come back to later in our career. Yeah. Some people are lucky enough to focus on it early. Um, but for me, it's just been in the last couple of years that I have been able to start to dismantle the processes um, and aesthetics that I had sort of put on for my employers, um, my creative directors, my bosses, whoever it was. I was sort of doing things in the way that they did them. Again, trying them on for a bit of time. And now I'm trying to figure out which ones of those actually fit me as a human. I think that also comes with the confidence as well, right? Some students may come into it. I've had students that come in where they know why they came into the program. They know what sort of design I or they have this key knack for whatever it might be, layout or color theory or just overall design. And they try to execute it through learning the lessons. But then there's some that maybe aren't sure about what it is that they're trying to achieve and how to get there. And I think with that sort of design confidence would actually create those moments where they can approach an instructor and say, hey, I know we have this project, but do you think I could take it this direction or that direction or build on it in this way? Because they would already have that sort of mindset of, or creative mindset of where they want to take control of the project rather than just meeting the requirements that's on a rubric that's already set. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Um, I think that was some of my experience too. In my, my last year at Humber, I discovered that editorial design was this thing that I loved so, so much. And, you know, we only had two classes of editorial design. And so figuring out how I could fill a portfolio with enough pieces to help me get my foot in the door of a magazine art team, um, 
I started manipulating a lot of my projects into editorial projects. So, you know, you had a, a brand project, I was making it a magazine masthead that I would then apply to a cover that I would then apply to a digital product. Um, if I couldn't turn it into a magazine or a newspaper, it was becoming a book or I was putting all of my energy into the process book that went along with the project to give me that those things. And I think that at the time, I perceived that as breaking the rules. Um, I perceived that as, you know, I was doing a lot of this stuff knowing that I might not actually meet the criteria of the project or assuming that I might not meet the criteria of the project. Um, I don't think, again, if I would go back to student me, I think I would have a lot more conversation with my instructors about the ways that I could do that and how that could be successful. Um, it worked out well for me in the end, and, and I still am grateful to past me <laughs> that I took that risk. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that figuring out where you can take control and to what end as a student is important. And I guess as an educator, it's important to make spaces where students feel empowered to do that. Yeah. And I think right now we're in a space where, you know, a lot of us are sort of redesigning our curriculum, especially for online where we have been, you know, prior when we, when we began this whole like lockdown during the pandemic. And it's, it's sort of a, a way of doing sort of like backwards design in saying, okay, if we want a student to recreate something rather than build something to show us their application of the knowledge, then you might have more students willing to take those risks as opposed to playing it safe and just building what the instructor wants, right? Yeah, and it means they get to leave with a portfolio that doesn't look exactly like their schoolmates, right? Which exactly. is a thing that that we battle against all the time, that if you review enough portfolios in this city, in your city, you start to notice who comes from which school because you've seen that project over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's sort of like what I want to change too is because, I mean, we have potentially 80 students about to graduate coming out of our program alone. Yeah. And if all 80 have the similar pieces, but just in different ways. Well, and stripped of so much of their own interests and influences yeah, it, it strips their whole identity their whole and and that's another topic but it's like even their own perspective and identity and everything that comes along with who they are is stripped out of that project i mean that's not really another topic you I mean, know we're yeah, still talking about but, per personas and identity and i true. think that you know did we go into school disvaluing or removing our existing identities in order to put on this new identity of design student and, and start shaping that from square one, not giving credit to everything that had influenced us before that? Maybe. I personally think so. For me, I think that's it. And I think I noticed that with some of my students as well. Like there's just things that I observe that I know that they are trying to appease um, other instructors or material in the course that say to them, I'm going to put my own perspective and what I know is true to me aside for the sake of this particular project or assignment. Yeah, no, I think that's all true. And I think, I guess that is partly why valuing vagueness in our assignment briefs now is becoming more and more popular, I guess. For sure. Uh, I think to let so. them have some room. I mean, I also think about the um, 
the moment you have to sit down and make a decision about what to focus on or what to do, there's a level of discomfort in there. So I think about, and I don't, I don't think any of them will mind me saying this, but my um, third year students, the students that just graduated from the Humber program in one of the first assignments that I gave them topic was up to them. I didn't dictate topic and it was a project they were going to spend an entire semester working on. And so dictating topic seemed mean on my account. Like who am I to tell you what you're going to spend your next four months thinking about and looking at and reading about. Um, And it crippled them. They had a really, really hard time determining what their individual topics would be. And the more I poked into why that was, there was this fear of it not being smart enough or not being cool enough or not right. That it just like, wouldn't stand up to sort of bar that they'd set for themselves, which was completely removed from their own identities. Yeah, exactly. And, and how do we even know that that bar is set by themselves? That's the thing. That bar is set by others that they deem as being successful or where they should be. So now they start valuing other people's success and comparing themselves to others rather than competing with themselves and comparing themselves to themselves. Um, I I recall even too, like I I tried that same sort of thing with my second years in the first semester. And you know, like how our process goes. I mean, we have maybe three major projects. And by the time you get to the third project, it's almost like a review of the first one and the second one. But now it's like put all two together and let's see how well you apply everything we've learned this semester into one final project. And I just said, you know what? These are the learning outcomes. I think this was a type class. So we've learned about grids. We've learned about hierarchy. We've learned about contrast. We've learned about typesetting, et cetera. Rather than doing a project on this to show me that you know all of these concepts, how about you create what you want that needs the usage of a grid, typesetting, contrast, hierarchy, and layout? And it could be anything you want. Right. It didn't have to be, example, a newspaper layout because who reads newspapers now? Right. Hey, man, <laughs> I mean, I got one. Yeah, you I got one, one sitting beside me. <laughs> OK, I'll X that out of the interview. Um, <laughs> but like they they came up with the same thing you did. Some were like, I want to do more editorial. So they made magazine covers or layout spreads. Some wanted to do more album art or po- or experiment with more poster art. Um, some did package design, uh, all of which required the concepts we've learned, but everybody had a different third project. Now, was it harder for me to grade? No, because the rubric was the same, right? So if I altered the rubric to say, how well did they apply these um, concepts and to what level and degree is it completed at, there's no issue. But if I have to make a rubric that says, what's their column width for multiple columns in a newspaper, then I'm kind of messed up, right? So if I have to go back and redo that assignment now, I would give them that autonomy over their learning to choose whatever application they want to apply those concepts to. And hopefully I get a more richer and vast portfolio and and different projects and different outlooks on things. and And then it's more meaningful and they're more engaged and they're more willing to work on that project and even go above and beyond because once they reach a rough patch and they can't figure things out, you'll see how resourceful they become when they're attached to a project now. Like they go out and they are more resourceful to actually figure things out when the project means something to them. I think that's so true. I think that in doing that, you are also 
letting each student be a person who is more than just a designer, right? So in that moment, they get to be more than one thing. You are a design student who is super invested in packaging design. And and maybe you're a design student who's super invested in packaging design who also finds sustainability to be really important. Yeah. Um, And maybe on top of that, you're also really into um, beauty. And so all of a sudden, the single project says so much more about you, your values, your aesthetic than the one set out by an instructor who just said, make said newspaper. Yeah. So like, I mean, last time, you know, we were on this podcast too, like I said earlier, we were speaking to some of our former grads and I guess even just like kind of briefly talking about a little bit about our sort of background, like what was your thoughts about those previous interviews? Did you like learn anything from those interviews while speaking to your students or like anything that maybe stood out or anything that you think you're going to take with you now into the next semester, knowing what you know now about their sort of personal journey or their reasons for actually taking these programs or backstories? Yeah, yes, a hundred percent. I think that for me, a good chunk of it was um, a reminder that there's just so much going on in a student's life um, than what we can actually access or see in the classroom. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we were talking to these graduates at the height of fear around a global pandemic. I mean, the whole reason we decided to talk to graduates was because we couldn't bring guests into the classroom anymore because we had gone fully digital. And so I think that that mixed with our current social political climate right now, where we are paying so much more attention, there's so much more awareness around inclusivity and equity and a reminder that everybody's path is is so, so different and everybody's obstacles are so, so different. Um, And so those were things that I think I'm thinking about from talking to those graduates um, and also just from the moment for sure. Yeah. I think that one of two things stood out to me in talking to, I talked to Connor and I talked to Ashley and two things that stuck out were the sort of crucial role of their internships for both of them and what that means. So thinking about the role of internships now, I don't have any answers, um, but seeing that, that those were really the catalyst to them getting into the industry and making connections within the industry and sort of solidifying their place. And, you know, I, I can't speak for both of them about whether they were paid or unpaid internships, but I would guess they were unpaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what does that system do to include and exclude people is something I'm thinking about. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll take into the classroom as well. Um, and then the other thing that really stood out to me were um, how important meeting people was to the opportunities that they had. So, so much of their experiences and um, their ability to find mentors and cheerleaders was about connections, people that they'd met. And so many of their challenges, their struggles were about trying to belong. Yeah. And so the connection between those two things I found really interesting. Yeah. And what about you? What did you take away? Those two things, like interesting for me, it was belonging and it was overcoming fear, like believing in themselves. And again, confidence. I think the two things that hold you back is fear and confidence. That's for me. Because I think, I think like, like you said, when you come into a space, an educational space, possibly knowing that education is 
a means of survival for you. There's a lot more motivation. It's a lot more motivation there because there's a lot more at stake. Got a lot more to lose. Yeah, a lot, a more lot to less lose, to support right? you. A lot more to lose. Exactly. Right. So when you talk about yeah. internships and and does that does that exclude people? Well, in a way, because you you sort of give the internships, the non-paid one to people who can afford not to be paid. And you exclude the ones who may have so much potential, but can't afford not to get paid. Yeah. Right. So they take something lesser or go another route and they could be so much more successful if they had access to, I guess, the financial component or the geographical component, whatever it may be. As someone who can step into that classroom and maybe, you know, doesn't have the confidence, maybe they know that they're the only ones. They're maybe the first of their family to go to college. Maybe they're the only ones that look like them, that speak like them. It could be age, gender, sexuality, anything. The whole thing about imposter syndrome is real. Like I said, when I came into computer programming, I didn't know anything about it. And then I'm sitting in a classroom of you know, an auditorium at the time of 600 people that went to collegiate high schools who had access to computers or private schools, and I didn't. And so what does that do to my mental space at that moment in time, right? So like you said, you have to put on this other persona. I have to sort of like believe in myself to a certain degree. And I guess you try to build this persona that you do know what you're talking about or you have prior experience for the fear of sounding uneducated or not aware of certain things in that particular space. Like you said, you know, you had experience with your your students as well. So there's a lot yeah. that, that goes on behind that. And I think I, I took away that from those interviews is fear and confidence. And one thing I did learn is that you start to understand that they sacrifice a lot to be in your classroom. And there's a lot of weight on my shoulders personally as their teacher to provide them with the education that they need to support themselves and their family. Because I could either educate them well enough to get a job or an internship, or I could botch the whole thing for them. Yeah. I mean, I think that is definitely a a shared weight between student and teacher, but I know what you mean about carrying that weight. Yeah. I think that, I think that's something going forward, like the, if connection, if belonging, if those are such important parts of an emerging designer's experience as an educator, you can be that connection for them. Exactly, You can be that connector. You don't need to be this like authority figure who does just deliver the lesson plan. You can have these conversations. You can help them connect to other people in the industry who look like them or who are doing something that they're interested in doing. And I do think that that is a weight we carry as educators, but I also think the um, having more conversations with students about empowering them to ask for those things. Again, I can only know so much about a student from what I can see in a classroom, which tends to be a lot of superficial assumptions in those instances. And so the more you can involve students in conversations and in the building of their own experience, I think the more interesting the outcomes will be. Um, You talked about confidence and fear. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things that I've been playing around with um, or paying attention to. Researching feels like uh, too big of a word to give to it because (laughs) it's been through an artistic practice. Yeah. But um, 
I actually think fear and confidence are um, essentially opposites. Like I think that in order to attain confidence, you need to acknowledge the fear. Mm -hmm. Like they're the thing that slows you down from being confident. Um, So I have this side project called The Scaries, which is to to me and my co-founder, Leandra Sancy, who's a, a commercial illustrator, to us, the scaries are legitimately our fears. They're our creative fears. They're the things that stop us from doing things, the things that stop us from doing things the way we want to do them, the things that stop us from trying because we're scared that we'll fail. Yeah. Um, and you know, over the last two years, as Leander and I have been working on this project, we have asked hundreds of people in creative industries and outside of creative industries what their scaries are. So we do this thing when we have... Um, in-person events, which obviously we are doing less of right now, where we would put up a sticky note wall and ask people to anonymously write their scaries on the wall and add them. Um, the vulnerability and willingness that people have to do that is mind-blowing. Yeah. And also how quickly people can access their fears <laughs> I, is I, also I, I mind-boggling. Yeah. Like you rarely see people hesitate to participate. Like they know, they know. that fear is at the front of their brain. Oh, yeah. Um, I find that really interesting. But in, in sort of looking back at those, those hundreds of sticky notes that we've collected to this point, many hundreds, um, a lot of our fears are the same. Some people's are hyper-specific and unique to them for sure, but the majority of people are just scared of failure and they're scared of being found out as a fraud. Yep. True. Um, and I find both of those things really interesting because um, how, how do you define failure? Like, what is failure? What is the worst possible thing that can happen if you do a project and it's not uber successful? You're not going to die. That's what I tell my no. students. <laughs> like, I'm like, what's the and worst that can happen? Like, And you're probably not going to lose your family no. and nobody's going to drain your bank account. Not at all. <laughs> and, and that's what I mean. Like, once people overcome the fear, then now it's just about trying. Right? Yeah. And like... I think sometimes the reason why I separate it is because, and and now that you explain it the way you do, I mean, they could be the opposite, but it's like the fear is like you said, fear of getting it wrong or what other people might say or the way that other people might perceive them. Confidence to me is like within the way you see yourself. Which I think is the, um, the imposter syndrome fear, right? This fear of being found out as a fraud. Why? why is not being an expert at something looked down upon so fully it, you know, you can be learning how to do something. You can be getting better at something. And that's, and nobody, that's, that's exactly it. Like I try to tell my students, like value the learning more than you value the grade. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's my message to them is know that you can always learn. Like they always say, like, it's not wins and losses, it's wins and learning. Right. Like when you learn, you could do better. Like don't take that failure to heart. Like let failure sort of fuel you. You know what I mean? Like I encourage failure. I want to fail because when I fail, I actually am aware of what I'm doing wrong and the areas that I can improve on. If I don't fail and I succeed all the time, A, once failure comes, I'm going to take it really hard. (laughs) It could crush me because I've just been doing well all my life. Two, I might not even accept the failure and might not take the critique because what are you talking about? I've been doing well my whole life. You don't know what you're talking about. But then it's also like 
if I if I know that I can fail, I enjoy the success much more. I'm more proud of myself for overcoming it, for trying again. And it and it does bring confidence in me to know that I'm able to do that. It might not I might not be able to just maybe try once like some people do, but to know there's some things, there's some satisfaction in knowing that you're capable of doing something on your own. Yes, everybody needs help with things, but everybody does need their own time and their own pace. Yeah. And they just have to yeah. understand that and that everybody's path is different. Yeah, I feel like I feel like you're describing confidence in the way that I describe self-awareness, I guess. Mm -hmm. So like in your mind is confidence, this sort of like emotional state that you drop into to help you overcome fear. Maybe, possibly. Honestly, I, I don't see. have a written definition for it. Like for me, it's just like, honestly, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's honestly just a feeling that I have. Yeah. Right. Like I just, I go off of feeling. I don't know even where I get those feelings from. It's only until I sit down and really reflect about things and, and wonder like, why am I scared of doing this? Or yeah. why don't I try and do this? And then I really start to think about it. And I'm like, oh, it's because like, I'm scared of what other people are going to think of me. Right. Or like, I'm scared people are going to think I don't belong here. And once I got over that, then it's like, it's just easy because I'm not in competition with anybody else. Well, I think that reflection and that, um, that, that looking inward is the thing that helps you overcome those fears. And so when Leander and I talk about the scaries, um, we often talk about, we talk about fears with people. And one of the questions we get asked all the time is like, okay, great. So we have these fears. How do I move on from that? How do I overcome it and do the thing that I really want to do? Yeah, Cause now you got to apply it. Right. And the thing that Leander and I have acknowledged in our own practice. And again, anecdotally and talking to other people about this is saying them out loud, like <sighs> the power that those fears have over you when they're just on loop in your own brain yeah. is so much stronger than it does when you spit it out. So the second you say it out loud, it loses some power. So I think that that's important, right? Write it down, um, say them out loud, tell somebody else that that's how scared you are. So they can tell you like, wow, yeah, I've felt that a million times in the past yeah. and you don't feel so alone in that space. Yep. Um, for whatever reason, and again, like I am not an expert. <laughs> I am a designer who's paying attention to yeah. self-doubt. Um, but saying those those scary things out loud and those negative things we say to ourselves um, does take away some of their power. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's, again, part of the reason why I chose to do something like this right? Yeah. Is to like when I, I mean, I have these conversations with students in my classroom, but I'm just like at the moment in time, I'm like, look, not that I'm tired of repeating it, but I'm like, I just want to show people like everybody has the same fears as you. Everybody has the same insecurities to some degree, right? Like we're all human. Just because you see your teacher at the front of the classroom doesn't mean that your instructor doesn't have fears, Every day I walk into the classroom, I have butterflies in my stomach. Like, I feel like yeah. I'm going to fail at this. Like, what if I say something wrong? What if I forget something? What if I miss something really important? You know what I mean? What like, if I don't know something? Yeah. What if? I, yeah. Because you, ha you have to know everything, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I have found such um, power in being able to say, I don't know. Yeah. So 
I taught a first year typography class, which is mostly historic, right? Like you're talking dates, you're talking movements, you're talking famous typesetters. Um, And I had, the class was huge. There was like 40 students in it. Um, And of course, when you get a class that big, you're going to get students whose brains work in interesting ways. And so I would get these wild questions that I was not expecting and not prepared for. Um, And they mostly came from from one person. Um, And so that person became my Google machine. Like there was, you know, in in the interest of not spewing misinformation to this class of students who are learning this for the first time, I just said, I don't know. And I said, I don't know, maybe three or four times a class to that group. Um, And I would say, I don't know. And this person would type it into Google and they would tell us the answer. (laughs) And I think that there was so much power in, in removing myself from that um, position of, of authority in that moment and stepping into a role of sort of leader, right? Like I actually don't know the answer to that and I don't want to get it wrong. But I can point you in the right direction. So collectively as a group, let's look it up. Yeah. Um, And that's the thing is like, if you, you're experienced in that area because you know how to decipher between good and bad knowledge, right? So if someone, if you, if you research something, if you pull up something, you'll actually be able to tell them, that sounds right. That doesn't sound right because there's holes in it because right. of my prior experience, right? But to a student who Googles something and has like a thousand results, they probably don't know what's right and what's wrong. But to show them that or to show them how you can be resourceful and that it is okay not to know something at that given time. Because let's face it, when you're out in the working world, you don't know everything right off the bat. Like you're actually learning while you're building things or doing well, you things. Can't, and you can't make good decisions reactively from a place of misinformation. Yeah. So actually indirectly teaching them how to be resourceful is a skill in itself. I also think that those moments, those moments of, of humanity in this instructor who you see as an authority figure um, – were helpful in, in shifting the conversation. And so I think you're right in that, you know, my, my not knowing was powerful, but also my ability to, to translate information, the answer would come. And all of a sudden I would be like, Oh, that's interesting. Now knowing that I bet you mm-hmm. that X, Y, and Z are also true. Yeah. You could make connections exactly. to other parts of the lesson plan from whatever that one piece of knowledge that was missing was. Yeah. And somebody in the classroom's brain was just wired to want to know that one piece of info. But those tangents are fun, right? Those, those tangents are the reason we all got into design because we like, I mean, I guess I can't speak for everybody, but typically designers I encounter are the kinds of people who like to pull on a thread and see what happens. They like to look at a problem from a couple different perspectives. Exactly. Because when you start to make those connections now and, and you've had the experience, like you said, you can build upon it, right? You start to yeah. build upon what you what you already know, and then you start to ask students questions that start to make them think differently, right? Like, okay, now that we know this, what if we did that? And that might spark something new. Yeah. Right? And I yeah, think that sure. is the key of like when you say being being more of a leader or a coach in the classroom. I mean, there's so many different terms that we have now, like facilitator. Yeah you know, all these different things, but, but it, that's exactly what you are, or you are all of them balled up into one. 
right? But I think yeah. nowadays with just so much access to information cannot hold that weight of believing that you are the person that they look to to bestow on them all that information. They have access to it, right? You shouldn't yeah, carry exactly. that weight into the classroom. Right, like yeah. that. Like I tried these things and they didn't work, um, but this one did for these reasons. I mean, you can apply that framework to pretty much every experience you have in life. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as usual, I enjoy speaking to you, having these conversations. Um, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and experiences with, with me today and also our listeners. Um, also, I want to thank you so much for teaming up with me for like those first few podcasts with the recent grads. Um, it was so fun. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and it was a, a different way of just sort of giving them those alternative to guest speakers, I guess basically hearing from each other. Um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. It's also been such a fun experience and lens through which to get to know you. Like, I think we've had so many conversations over the last couple of months that I think will make me a better educator overall. Oh, and I think you do the same for me and everybody does the same for me, right? Even students, mm -hmm. teachers, I think all these conversations help me sort of see what's in the mind frame of, of others and I learn from it and hopefully like I try to take parts of that into the classroom uh, with me. Every time you put on your educator persona? Yeah, my educator persona. <laughs> so Nicola, if listeners want to connect with you or uh, find out more about you or maybe see your work online, where can they connect with you? Uh, so they can find me at Nicola Hamilton. .ca. There's an email address there if you want to connect directly. And then if social media is your bag, I am at Nikki Dearest on Instagram and Twitter, which is N-I-C-K-Y Dearest. Perfect. Okay. So thank you all for listening. This is Nicola Hamilton, currently president of RGD and independent art director slash graphic designer and educator. Thank you so much, Nicola, for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. For show notes and links mentioned in this podcast, visit HowDoWeGetHerePodcast.com. To receive updates and new episode releases, subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EdTechXD for all things education and design with wellness in mind. Thanks so much for listening.